The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Well, we are in the book of Exodus. If you are joining us here today, we have been working our way through this wonderful book and... We've been in chapter 3 where God speaks out of the burning bush and Moses says basically, who am I and then who are you? And God tells him, I am who I am. And last week we saw that part of what I am means is that God is eternally existent and he is self-sufficient and he is independent and he is the covenant-keeping God. Six days ago, many millions saw and heard at the funeral of the queen, one of the scriptures that was read earlier than we read last week, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That that quote was part of the internationally televised prayer during that funeral of the queen, and It went on, the next line, We meekly beseech thee, O Father, to raise us from the death of sin unto the life of righteousness, that when we shall depart this life, we may rest in him, speaking of the Savior as our hope, and and this is part of it, and receive that blessing which thy well-beloved Son shall then pronounce to all that love and fear thee. Grant us this, we beseech thee, O merciful Father, through Jesus Christ, our mediator, and Redeemer. Amen. Those words went out all around the world, and I think we need to pray that the new King Charles and that many around the world would, in fact, truly believe in Jesus as the I Am, the resurrection, and the life. And that's who the book of Exodus is ultimately about. God's people need a mediator. God's people need a Redeemer. God's people need someone to speak God's word to them, but ultimately they need the blood of a lamb that will forgive them and cleanse them and ransom them. And at the end of Exodus 2, we're in a situation where the ruler of Egypt died, and, and Israel is grieving in a, in a different way, grieving because of the harshness of their evil slavery. And undoubtedly, it was an oppressive funeral. We know about the funerals of the pharaohs, those state funerals and their burials, maybe in a pyramid. But today in Exodus 3, we're again going to look at this. The high king of heaven has a speech for the new king of Egypt and its kingdom. And this is not just for them. This is for the world who would hear what he has to say. And we began looking at the first part of chapter Three and look at chapter 3, verse 8, where God says to Moses, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And, and, and I want you to notice in the text we're going to look at today that hand is a, is a key term and a key theme in the book of Exodus. And ancient Egyptian texts, when they describe the Pharaoh, they, they often described him as the one with a strong hand. We, we have this all over archaeology. And their inscriptions. He was known as the one who destroys or shatters enemies with his arm. And in fact, the, the Pharaoh, who was likely the Pharaoh at the time that Moses was growing up, Thutmose II, was entitled Lord of the Strong Arm. Uh, he, was, he was called the Great of Power, the Mighty of Arm. And so that's the, the background of Exodus. But after the plagues and after the Red Sea, crossing. This is what Israel is going to sing to God. In power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy because of the greatness of your arm. And they're going to celebrate the Passover. And part of the Passover liturgy or what was going to be playing out, which has been going on for thousands of years, what they would ask them, Lord, they would ask their father, the, the sons would ask, why, why do we do all these things, all these different elements? And, and here's what they were to say it all meant. What that means is with a strong hand, Yahweh brought us out of Egypt. He's the one with the strong hand. 
He is the one true God who is, who is the Lord of a strong arm. And, and Pharaoh is no deity. Pharaoh has no sovereignty. Pharaoh is not truly mighty. God is going to win hands down. Look at chapter 3, verse 19. Now, where we pick up from last time. But I know, God says, that the king of Egypt will not let you go, listen for this, unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out, God says, my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Now in chapter 4, I want you to listen for that word hand. And we're going to see God has the upper hand. He's going to deliver from Egypt's hand, but he's going to do it through the hand of Moses. So look for that. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Moses answered, but behold... They will not believe me or listen to my voice. And he's talking about Israel here. They, Israel, will say, The Lord, this is Yahweh, did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it to the ground. And he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. It was likely a poisonous serpent. He'd seen a lot of snakes in the wilderness. He sees this serpent. He runs. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. And God said this, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. This is God showing his healing power. There's also his power to afflict with disease or plague. Verse 8, if they will not believe you, again, this is Israel, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may listen to, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. This is the inspired infallible, inerrant word of God that he told to Moses. You ever heard someone say, God told me? And you wonder, how do, how do I know for sure? I'm, I'm trying to imagine maybe someone who's, who was at this church 40 years ago and, and they come back. That's how long Moses had been away from, from God's people and was to come back and say, hey, I'm here I want to gather a meeting. I want you guys to know what God told me and, and what you must do. How, how do we know that this person is, in fact, speaking for God? And, and it's interesting. Moses does not expect them to trust him. And that's, that's reasonable. What he's saying here is, is not sinful when he's asking this question. He's not expecting them just to take his word for it, that he'd seen God and heard his word. But it, it begs the question, does God speak today as, as he does here. And, and, and if he did, how would we know? How should we just take someone's word for it? Should we just trust someone who claims that God told them something and this is what you must do? And another question, we, we saw Moses, his hand was, was leprous, white like snow, and then he puts it in his cloak and he instantly pulls it out and he is, he's healed from a, a deadly, incurable disease. Are we to expect that to happen today, one instant, and it's permanent healing. Are we to expect that? What are we to make of people who claim to be miracle workers like Moses, or claim to be healers like in Bible times, or, or say that God came to them? What are we to make of that? You can turn on Christian TV, especially TBN, you can see alleged signs and wonders and 
supposed prophets, and there's many who will tell you that, that we can expect wealth and prosperity, just like Israel when they came out of Egypt and plundered them. That's God's will always for God's people. There's even some who will try to handle snakes by the tail like Moses. doesn't always go well, but some try. But we need to see what was actually happening here and what God was doing in Bible times. We need to see his true work and counterfeits. And Moses rightly expects God's people to be skeptical in verse 1. Because how are they going to believe that he actually had God appear? I'm just trying to imagine this. He's saying, guys, I, I saw this bush. It, it was burning. Well, I mean, it, it was kind of, I mean, it wasn't actually burning up, but it was, it was burning. And then, and then it started talking. I mean, this is, this is what he's going to go and, and tell Israel. I'm, I'm imagining a, a scraggly stranger coming to church today and telling the elders, I need to gather you after the service. And I, I was talking to a bush the other day, and and he told me what you must do, I, I, would, I would not believe him. I would be wondering, did the desert heat get to him? Is he maybe, was he dehydrated? Was he delusional? Or is he deceptive? I don't know. But Israel is going to wonder. And so God is going to do wonders through the hand of Moses, through the hand of Moses that is going to guide them and that is going to write Scripture And there's a very specific purpose why we see this. And I want us to see in this passage as we walk through it, the uniqueness of God speaking and miracle workers. Because there's some firsts in Scripture in this passage. And also the purpose of signs and wonders in Bible times. This is something that I think is we don't often think about. Why was God doing certain things at certain times? And then the witness of Christ's sufficient word for us today, but first we need to see it's unique the way that God speaks here and the way that he speaks in his Bible before his Bible was written. It was never a normal occurrence for believers to hear God speak from what we see in Scripture. In fact, the millions of Israelites back in Egypt did not hear from God. He spoke specifically to an individual who was going to go and, and be his spokesman. That's Moses' unique calling here. He would also write down Scripture for the first time. That would be another first through Moses. And from what we can tell in the text, it had been 400 plus years since anyone had heard from God until the burning bush. In fact, Moses is asking, who, who are you? And he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They, they had heard God speak, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, and a few others. But, but taking those 2,500 plus years since Adam's family, we, we don't see God often speaking even to his patriarchs, even before any of God's word was written down. Normally, they orally passed down what God had said to other believers who did not hear God audibly. And when God did speak, like in Genesis 22, it was very unique. So he says, Abraham, sacrifice your son. And there was no question. This wasn't just a feeling. I'm not sure if that's exactly what he meant. There was no question what God said audibly and that he was to obey it. Is that the way that we are to think today? Or if we were to hear a voice to say, sacrifice your son, how would, we, how would we know? I think a lot of times when people talk about God saying things today, these are things that we would, can question and should question. But also I think sometimes people are talking about strong impressions but just, I'm just imagining working in your yard, you're doing a burn pile. What if you saw a rattlesnake, this deadly snake, and, and you ran away? But, but what if you felt this strong impression, grab that snake? Should you grab that rattlesnake, grab it by the tail especially? Is that God speaking? Or what if it wasn't, if there actually was this audible voice coming out of the fire that says, come back here, grab the snake by the tail, should you do that? Would you do that? That's what the Lord said here in verse 4. And Moses instantly obeyed. But if someone were to say today, the Lord said, is, is he confident it's the same thing that we're talking about in Genesis or here? Is it something he would risk his son's life for, give his son's life for, or risk his own life for? It, it's not the same thing as verse 4, the Lord said when people speak like that today. So 
I would encourage us not to say the Lord said, like in the Bible. I think when we say that God spoke to me and, and, and we don't mean what's going on here, we actually demean what the Bible means and the uniqueness of what's happening. I think some people keep using that phrase, God told me, but they do not mean what they think it means. It does not mean what I think some people mean by that. Listen to what the Lord said through this same Moses in Deuteronomy 4. You shall not add to the word that I command you. And he says in Deuteronomy 4, Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire and still live? He's telling Israel, it's incredibly unique for someone to hear God speak and still live. I remember a pastor telling a story about someone who was telling him, Yeah, I was shaving the other day, and then God came and God started talking to me and this pastor asked him, did you keep shaving? (laughs) Because if you kept shaving, that doesn't sound like what happened when God actually came and spoke to people in, in the Bible. But here's what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 18, or actually Deuteronomy 4, actually Exodus 20 at Mount Sinai, Israel does hear later and they fear. If you hear what they hear, that voice, you fear, you fall. And Moses, the one who heard from God, understood and wrote again in Deuteronomy 18. It's a very serious thing to claim God spoke to you or said something like he did to the prophets in Bible times. Deuteronomy 18.20 The one who presumes to speak a word in my name that God has not commanded him to speak, he shall die. This was serious. If you're not sure enough to die, if you're wrong, don't presume to call it a word from God, And I'm not denying that, that there can be extraordinary experiences that, that can happen, but they're not normal, they're not reliable, and they're not more spiritual than, than Scripture. I think some people, when they, some of this could be terminology, when they say God is talking to me or He's speaking, I think sometimes they mean He's leading me or He's convicting me by His Spirit. He's He's showing me and convicting me by His Spirit from the truth that He's revealed, that, that impressing upon me this truth I need to follow in, in this way. God can impress on us. He can compel us. He can put someone or something on our heart. He can even do extraordinary things. He can do whatever He wants, but that's not the same as what God was doing here with Moses. There was a unique purpose with what was happening here that I think we can understand. There can be a specific sin He reveals to you. I think he does that, and we need that. There can be a specific person that you feel strongly he's he's moving you to go and witness to that person. He's told you that in Scripture, but it's it's this person. You just feel, I need to witness to this person, and I I praise the Lord that he he does that. I think we should say it like that, or say, I feel convicted, or I I feel led, or, or I sense Maybe, but to say, thus says the Lord, or, or God told me, that's the language of prophets and God's spokesmen to others. I think instead of talking about speaking, it's better to use the, the language of, of God leading. His, he leads us through His Spirit, the New Testament says. that There is calling, a, a calling that He can have on our lives to apply His Word. But we need to test that. We need to not just throw that out like a, like a trump card, because this is what... God was saying to me, we need to also submit how we feel led to Bible-based counsel. Here's what Ezekiel 13, 6 says. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them. You have said, the Lord declares, although I have not spoken. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood, I am against you, declares the Lord God. This is important because the, the book of, end of Revelation ends with a warning not to add to the words of that book where God will add plagues on you like Egypt. And that's not just for, for prophecy or, or the law of Moses who wrote about this. Proverbs 30, verse 6 says, Do not add to God's word lest he rebuke you. Kevin DeYoung tells a story about how sometimes we, we have a difficult decision and so we, we, we bring God into it to kind of be the trump card. And so this girl wanted to break up with her boyfriend and she said that, God told me I needed to break up with you. And Kevin DeYoung said, the poor guy, not only was he broke, his girl dumped him, but God dumped him too. What do you say to that? 
Bodhi Bakum said, if you're, if you're talking about God talking to me and it's not the Bible, he says, let's not be flippant about that phrase. Please stop using that phrase because it belittles what God did to Moses. God spoke to Moses. He may move me. He may use people to speak into my life, but he doesn't do what he did here. And, and, and Bodhi says, if he does, then our Bibles should not be leather-bound but we should have them in a three-ring binder so that we can add those new speakings. Because if he's speaking like he does here to Moses, it, it bears authority. We need to be careful with that phrase. God's speech here is unique, and the miracles that happen here are also unique. It's, it's unique in history to see miracles like Exodus 4. In fact, the word miracle is used for the first time in Bible history in this text, chapter 4, verse 21, and then signs and wonders are mentioned also. Since creation, God primarily had been working through providence. So we see God unmistakably at work in the life of Joseph, the end of Genesis, but it's in, in his providence. Rather than his miracle, in the, the classic definition of a, a miracle that defies natural laws or causes. So when Moses puts, has this hand that is leprous and then in an instant physically, visibly, that is healed, there's no explanation for that. Or, or the, the serpent and the snake and how it's transformed back and forth. There was sleight of hands that the, that the Egyptians tried to do, but it wasn't the same. Or, or changing the molecular structures is what happens here. Because what the Egyptians were doing is they had staffs that were really snakes that were kind of still, and they would throw them down and they would wake up. But this is actually changing this wooden staff that he had been holding for years. It actually became a snake. When he picked it up, it actually became a staff again. There's no explanation for the changing of the molecular structure of that object or the water actually being changed to blood, not turning red color, turning to blood. And we'll, we'll look later at how some of the Egyptians tried to do some of that by sleight of hand, but it wasn't the same. True miracles like that are very rare. This is what R.C. Sproul writes in Moses in the Burning Bush. We have a, a tendency to read the Bible as if miracles were happening every other day to everyone in history, but actually a close look at the appearance of miracles in the Bible reveals that they're clustered. And there you have those bullet points there on the screen of, of those Times There were miracles that attended Moses in his mediator spokesman office, but then very little miraculous activity took place for centuries. The next redemptive historical period that had a cluster of miracles was with Elijah, and we could add some other prophets there as well. After that, we don't read about miracles of the Old Testament until a blaze of miracles attended the appearance of Jesus. And so we talk about the 400 silent years from when the the Old Testament was finished being written until when the New Testament came. And even we have writings of the Jews in that era lamenting that, that it seemed like God was now absent and, and we don't hear the prophets speaking anymore and scriptures not being written. But we see God miraculously was at work in, in many ways. He would miraculously, the most notable one was at the flood, he brought that miraculous supernatural judgment but he also miraculously saved at times and so daniel and his friends god himself through his hand intervenes to save them in the fire and in the lion's den so those things we see those happen at times but a miracle worker a human being with an ongoing miraculous gift is 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 rare and moses is the first and one of a few miracle workers who was given power in his own hand to perform this. So look at chapter 4, verse 17, where God says, Take in your hand this staff with which you shall do all the signs. And then verse 21, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. Literally, in your hand is the word. Is a miraculous power or gift God gave to man. So God can and does do miracles at other times. I believe can it, God, he not only can, but he does miracles today. God can heal, and I, I know there's people in this room, God has healed you in ways that the doctor cannot explain, and we give God the glory for that. 
God is at work and does work in whatever way he wants, but that's different than a human being with the power to heal you and to heal anyone. And when Moses, as the first writer of Scripture, is given these gifts, the context originally is, how are they going to know that you actually spoke to God? How are they going to know that you actually speak for God? But just thinking of Moses and Joshua, Elijah, and Elisha, Jesus, and the apostles, if we had a, if we had a timeline of, of human history going back to the time of creation, 4,000, let's say, or probably a little more than that, but 2,000 B.C., 1,000, and then going into today, you could go down that, that line of history, and there's a, there might be a miracle here and there, but all of a sudden there's this blip of, of miracles around 1500 B.C., around the time Moses is getting ready to write Scripture. And then we go forward a few hundred years, and when, when the time of the prophets come, and they're going to be writing Scripture more, we see another, another jump and a whole bunch of miracles and, and miracle workers specifically taking place. And then we go another several hundred years, and then as soon as we come into the new century, it's the biggest blip ever of miracles. And then and the timeline goes on. That's, that's what we see. Over 90% of the miracles in Scripture happened in those eras that total a hundred-some years. And we need to have some of that in mind. There were a few exceptions here and there, but over 90% of those miracles in a hundred-some years. And so we need to consider not only the uniqueness but the purpose of signs and wonders in Bible times, and there's a primary one that we see in this text, actually we see both of these, to confirm for the believers, in this case Israel, who spoke for God and who wrote for God. And then there's a secondary that we'll look at first, a warning judgment on unbelievers while offering deliverance. So look at chapter 3, verse 20 for that second one. God says, so I will stretch out my hand, why is he going to do this, and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. God knew that his heart would be hard, and we'll see even how judgment and hardening go together in in future messages, but this judgment is about to fall, and it falls through these Signs, And we see a similar thing with Elijah and Elisha and the prophets who did these miracles bringing judgment or predicting that judgment was about to fall on God's people. And they were going to go into exile. And then we think of Jesus' miracles that were rejected by the Jewish leaders. And then he promised them judgment was going to come in their lifetime. And it came in 70 AD. So we see that in those three eras as well. There was judgment coming on those people who rejected those undeniable miracles. But at the same time, there was deliverance. Uh, He he and and the apostles and prophets also brought miraculous deliverance to the elect. And so look at Exodus 4, verse 9, and and even the water to blood, we'll look at that more in a couple weeks. But that's a a sign of of judgment. The water of the Nile was their, their life. And he's going he's gonna to bring death upon them and even their, their sons. But deliverance is also going to come by the blood, isn't it? It's going to come by the blood of the Lamb so that their sons don't have to die when the sons of Egypt die. And so what we're seeing here, what he's going to show Israel is actually giving them a little preview of what's going to come. So in verses 6 through 7, when God gives this disease and then delivers from it, this disease on their skin, which... There's also going to be plagues that had to do with diseases that God can in an instant afflict them. God can also in an instant take that away. That's showing God's power. There was no God of Egypt that could do that. They, they would try to pray to their gods, but, but none of them could do this. And in verses 2 through 5, this staff, this staff was, was going to be what God visibly delivered Israel through in the hand of Moses, the, the serpent that it turns into represents deadly power on Egypt. And, and Egypt liked to think of itself, Pharaoh liked to think of himself as the great serpent. And this is going to actually devour him. We're going to see that in the weeks ahead. But these signs gave physical deliverance often. And they pointed to spiritual salvation. So the signs of, of Jesus and the prophets as well also physically delivered people and healed and brought and showed the Lord's compassion as well in that 
physical deliverance, but the spiritual deliverance is what they ultimately point to. And so that secondary purpose, we'll see, we'll see more how that unfolds in chapters 5 through 14 in the future. But the first purpose here is primarily what Moses is concerned about in chapter 4. And it's the first mention of signs and wonders in Scripture here. Chapter 3, verse 20 mentions wonders. Chapter 4 mentions these signs that he would show Israel and that then they would show Egypt. And, and you think, why were those miracle workers given in these three time periods, Moses, the prophets, and the first century? It was to show who spoke God's word. It was to show who wrote God's word. These rare times that we see these human miracle workers with ongoing gifts is before new revelation is going to come in Scripture. And so these miracles, these signs and wonders gave legitimacy and gave validity for God's ambassadors and, and for God's authors of Scripture. Think if, if you were to go to another country and just show up and say, I'm, I'm an ambassador from another kingdom, there's going to need to be some credentials. There's, there's going to need to be something that gives you credibility. Moses and, and these others show up basically with a, a heavenly passport with heavenly power that that backed them that they are actually representing the all-powerful god of heaven but again what moses is concerned he knows there's millions of people we're going to read later there's six hundred thousand men so it could be two or million or more if he's wanting millions of people who don't really know him to follow him into a desert just to say i heard from a talking bush is not going to be enough there needs to be more. And so God gives three signs, and, and you wonder, why not, why not one amazing sign? Well, Moses is also going to write later that everything needs to be established by two or three witnesses. And he's going to establish this fact by three witnesses. So look at verse 31, and we'll look at this more next week. Moses with Aaron show and tell to Israel. They, they show the wonders. They they tell the words of God. End of verse 31 says, He also performed the signs before the people, this is Israel, and they believed. This is about Israel here in chapter 4. We'll get to Pharaoh later. But this is so that the, the believers would know that, in fact, he did hear from God. We read this about Elijah when he healed the widow's son. And this is from 1 Kings 17, the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. He had healed, raised her son from the dead by God's power. And she says, I know that you're a man of God now. I know that the word in your mouth is actually true. And then Jesus, when he turns the water into wine in John 2, John 3, verse 2, they say, Teacher, we know that you are from God, for no one could do these signs that you are doing unless God is with him. Acts 2, 22, Jesus of Nazareth, attested or accredited by God to you with miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. That's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. You know the signs and the wonders. In fact, the Jewish leaders couldn't deny them. There's no sleight of hand. They, they, the only thing they could say is maybe he's doing it by the power of Satan. There was no question of his miracles. And the apostles... Acts 5, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Listen to this. They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, that his shadow would fall on them. And Acts 5 says, they were all healed. Some of them were unconscious. It wasn't about their level of faith. All of them were healed. They brought all the sick people. They're all in the streets. They're lining their cots and their beds. Peter just walks by. His shadow falls. There was physical deliverance for all of them. No one since then has been able just to walk through hospital beds and, and heal by your shadow. No one's even claimed to be able to do that. Or later by a a handkerchief that, that you touch just being sent to somewhere else and you were healed. I, sh I shouldn't say no one's claimed. There's people who have claimed to be miracle workers, but they, there's nothing like this that we've seen since then. And so again, God can and does heal today. 
But the miracle workers, the, the healers that we see in Bible times, we, we haven't seen since. And, and the purpose when he did that was not just so that all of Jerusalem would be healed, although that apparently happened, but it was so they could see, and it says this in Acts 4, that these men had been with Jesus. And by his power, they spoke his word. And they later wrote his word. And so Acts 14.3 says, Paul and his associates came speaking for the Lord, listen, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. This Paul who comes in a little bit later to the, the church, how do we know he's one of the apostles? The Lord bore witness to his word by granting signs and wonders to be done by Paul and his associate Barnabas. And so when the Corinthians questioned Paul's credentials as an apostle in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, this is what Paul said. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with signs and wonders and mighty works. There's people who claim to be apostles today, but they, they cannot claim the signs and wonders and mighty works that we read Paul and the apostles doing. And so Paul, when he writes the New Testament letters, think about this next time you read one of Paul's letters when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's giving credibility that I am authorized to write Scripture here because I am an apostle of Christ. The apostles had seen the risen Christ. Paul had the Lord appear to him in a special way on the road to Damascus. But the, the, the prophets also, the Old Testament, the apostles, they spoke and they wrote God's word and their miracles validated their message. And so think of the signs of Moses that came before Scripture was written. And, and Genesis through Deuteronomy, it really we go through the first half of Scripture written after him. And then Elijah before the prophets, the, the, the rest of the Old Testament written after that Time And then the signs of Jesus and the apostles come as the New Testament, the final revelation of God in the first century is going to be written. And it's interesting that Jesus and often speaks of the Old Testament as the law and the prophets, or Moses and the prophets. He sums up the whole revelation before him in those categories. And then Ephesians 2.20 says the New Testament church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's that's the foundation, the apostles and prophets. They're that foundation of the, of the church. A foundation is, is only laid once. You don't have to be a construction engineer to know that you, you lay the foundation at the beginning. And, and that foundation, the apostles who have, who have now passed away in the first century, it's been laid down, it's, it's completed. It's not to be repeated 20 Stories later, as you're building this this building up, and now you you bring the we need to bring the foundation back on on the very top. The the building would collapse. We don't need that after 20 centuries or the 20th story of a, a building. The, these true apostles and prophets, those who the, the apostles saw Christ, they they did signs that Christ did, and they completed the once for all foundation in God's word. This is what we sang earlier. Your word alone is solid ground. The mighty rock on which we build. That's, that's what we can bank on. Ephesians 2.20 says, Apostles and prophets were the foundation, and Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. So you needed the foundation, but you needed the cornerstone. This was, this was crucial. That cornerstone needed to be put in there. It's, it's not just the apostles and the prophets. Christ has to be that, that chief cornerstone. So that now the firm foundation for saints of the Lord is, is laid for our faith in his excellent word. And that foundation is done once for all because Christ is sufficient. And his word is sufficient, which takes us to thirdly and finally, the witness of Christ's sufficient word for us today. This is our what we teach statement that we've had for many years. We believe the gift of apostle or prophet and related Revelatory miraculous gifts were uniquely for the founding of the New Testament church and to attest God's spoken word before the completion of Christ's sufficient final written word which warns against new revelation or extra-biblical prophecies. 
So this is about Christ's sufficiency and finality in his word. Exodus 4, we need to understand, ultimately looks forward to the one who has power to transform. The one who has power over the serpent. The the promised one that Moses knew about from Genesis who would actually defeat the serpent. The the, the Messiah to come. The one who had power to heal any disease and all. To to heal leprosy. He actually, remember a man with with this dead and withered hand and Jesus instantly heals that man's hand. No one could deny his power. He had power to turn water into another substance. He could turn water into wine. Here, the Lord turns water into blood. And there's wonder-working power in His blood. He can turn us from sin. If He can transform, if He can turn a staff into a snake, He can, he can change you. Amen? He can work in your life. He, he can use us. He can use very ordinary people who are inadequate, who have questions, who, who, who don't think that we're up to the task like Moses is, who, who feel insufficient. Christ is sufficient for them. He's showing his power at work. And I want you to turn to Hebrews 1. But as you do that, some questions that people have is maybe, okay, we haven't seen these types of signs throughout church history, but, but maybe these signs will revive at the end Actually, Jesus warns that at the end there will be many false prophets who will do signs and wonders to try to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. So we do have statements in Scripture about that. There are warnings. Watch out for that. Should we seek signs today? Should we expect, should we seek signs today? Jesus also answered that in Matthew 12 when he said this, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. That was actually a sign of of a wicked and adulterous generation that is craving and seeking after signs. Paul said this, Jews demand signs. But Paul says in Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. Christ is the power of God. You want to see the power of God on display? It's Christ. It's it's the gospel that is the power of God. Maybe you think, do we need miracles today so that men will believe? Or or think, man, if, if I could raise someone from the dead like Elijah or Paul, surely that would make people repent. Jesus actually told a story one time where one of the characters says, if, if someone can just go back from the dead, my brothers will repent. And this is what Jesus said, Luke 16. Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Isn't that interesting? Moses and the prophets, let them, let your brothers hear them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they don't listen and they don't hear the word of God, they're not going to be convinced by miracles. In fact, as you read through Revelation, you see as God's pouring out his wrath in the end, they're they're, they're still cursing him. Even as he's bringing plagues, we're going to see that in Exodus. They're The unbelievers are hardened, Pharaoh in particular, but his people as well. And not only did Jesus say that they won't be convinced, it actually was fulfilled when Jesus rose from the dead. The Jewish leaders had the soldiers come, told them what happened, and the Jewish leaders didn't say, you know what, now we're convinced. Jesus rose from the dead. They paid off the soldiers, said, don't tell anyone. We'll pay you as much money as it takes to keep you quiet because they were not convinced even when Jesus rose from the dead. It was a moral issue, not a miracle issue. So putting all this together, Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our, prophet, our fathers by the prophets. So, so in the past, there's been these prophets that God spoke to many times, many ways. God, God's been speaking in many ways. But, verse 2 In these last days, those are the days that that start really in the New Testament and as it's completed, he has spoken to us by his Son. So God's last word. Actually, Christ is the word. He's the the word who comes among us. He He is how God in these last days speaks now. In the past, God spoke by prophets, but he now decisively and finally 
in the grammar. He's spoken to us by Jesus. We don't need any revelation after the final New Testament book. We're not like the, the Mormons who add different books or the Catholics who added different books throughout church history. The final New Testament book is the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. That's what we call it, revelation, but it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the final book that closes the, the canon, closes the completed 66 books. Christ's work is sufficient. His word is sufficient, and his work is sufficient to save you. And so if you're a sinner here today, if you see your sin here today, you, you, see, the, you see all the things that Jesus has done in Scripture and all his mighty works that he's done for you and the fact that he, through his common grace and providence, has been gracious to you, but, but you realize that you are a sinner. You realize that you have a, a sin problem because you fall short of that law that Moses wrote. You fall short of what Jesus had said, and you realize, I need, I need a redeemer. I need a, I need a mediator. I, I need someone between me and, and God. If you turn from your sin, if you trust in Jesus and his death and his life for you and his resurrection for you, you will actually see a miracle. You can see a miracle today. You can see your new life today. Does God do miracles today? Absolutely. I think there's more than 200 in this room right now who are miracles because when God brings a dead sinner to life, there is no greater miracle. If we want to see a miracle, let's share the gospel that is the power of God to people. Look at Hebrews 2, 3. Hebrews 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was at first declared by the Lord. Notice this. It was declared by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. So there's people who heard. Those were the apostles. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the Lord first declared the salvation. Then it was accredited or attested by us who heard. He's talking about the apostles and those close to them. And then God bore witness by signs and wonders. And he's, he's even in, looking in the past tense here. Probably writing in 68 A.D., somewhere in there. Before 70 A.D., I think we can tell by how Hebrews is written. Even then, he's speaking, seems to be speaking of the age of miracles in the past. But I want to let one more writer, the Apostle Peter, weigh in. Flip forward a few pages to, to 2 Peter. So Hebrews, James, 1 2 Peter. Because there was an amazing experience. A voice heard in a, in a maybe even more spectacular way than Moses heard on another mount. It was, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And Peter was there. James and John and Jesus were there. And you know who else shows up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. And as a part of that amazing experience there, they actually vanish at one point. And then this voice booms from heaven, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. But, but think about that. The, the three miracle worker eras come together. The law, Moses, and the prophets. And they're with the apostles. And they're with the presence of Jesus. And, and Peter, like he always does, starts, starts just talking. And, and God basically tells Peter, Stop talking. And he even makes Moses and Elijah disappear, and he says, listen to Jesus. This is who you are to listen to now. This is the full and final revelation. He's the one who's going to complete all that we need. He's the one we need to listen to. And this is how Peter comments on that, Second Peter 1, 17. He actually heard a voice from heaven. But the middle of verse 17, the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You think, wow, that, that must have done wonders for Peter to hear that. If we could just hear that from heaven, this is my beloved Son, a booming voice like that in the glory cloud like that. Surely that's what we need. That would confirm, that would be what we need to be sure and would confirm our faith. Look at verse 18. We ourselves... Heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and 
Peter says, he's speaking to all Christians now, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. We have the, we have the word, the, the, the word that is even more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. We've got something even more confirmation than that, more sure than that. Your Bible might say even more certain than that. You don't need to seek an experience like that, Peter says. You need to see that you have something supernatural in your hands. You have God's very voice speaking when you open his word and understand it. You have the the sure word. You don't have to worry about, was I remembering that right? You have it right in front of you. This is the light that you need. This is the more sure voice than any other voice out there. When you open the prophetic word, when you open the scriptures... This is what we need to pay attention to. And we would do well, Peter says, to pay attention to it. This is what's reliable. You want to know for sure what God says? Open his word. And he speaks. And this is what verse 3 of 2 Peter 1 says. His divine power has granted to us all things that we need for life and godliness. Another translation says, everything we need through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. I like the translation, magnificent promises. You want to see something magnificent, don't look for it out there. Look for it in God's promises. And I want to just close with the lyrics of a song called Signs by Beautiful Eulogy. And this poet says, My life is more like the book of Ruth than Exodus. I've never seen the parting of an ocean or a cloud by day or a pillar by night, just the normal everyday working of life. But silly us, we ignore the plain. We prefer a riddle. We're dying to see a miracle while we're holding God's diary looking for signs. Here's his diary that he's given to us, and we're looking out there. He says, remember that time I saw the leaf fall? I was positive it was God's call. Sometimes what we believe to be true from our supernatural pursuits is actually a a fluke, a series of events that's to distract us from the truth. But one of the here's a sign that's obvious. One of the most supernatural acts is that God, through his word, has actually given to us everything we need for life and godliness. There's this idea that an individual is somehow more spiritual if he can see these signs and symbols and what's normally invisible. But I say the mark of a mature man is one who reads God's word and understands and allows that to govern his decisions and prospective plans. So may the Lord and his spirit who's at work among us help us to honor him and his word. Amen. Amen. Let's pray to him. Our great God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. You can speak truth into our lives from those who know your word. We thank you, Lord, for the miracles among us of salvation. And Lord, I pray that you would use us to speak your powerful gospel to others and to see that wonder-working power at work. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.